If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you doing there it's podcast time what you're listening to is Mr. Davis the guitar supremo who's actually playing an old guitar we have down here in the basement, which is meant to be six strings, but it's actually four and a half, I see, John. (laughs) (laughs) This is a new tune you're writing, without lyrics. Without lyrics. I'll write the the lyrics, you write the tune. Simon and Garfunkel. I won't have the big hair like Art Garfunkel. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, man? I'm very good. I am very good. Yeah, but speaking of music, Mac. Yeah. And art. Art, well, you've always uh, been, you know, the the, uh, the art critic. But have you seen, you know, these NFTs and digital art and all the rest? I do. Have you seen the price that one of these pieces of digital art went for? I, 60 million. I think it was even 70 million. Was it? 70 million. It makes it even the worse. Most, I think that it's the third most expensive piece of art by a living artist ever sold is what they call an NFT, a digital piece of art. I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. In fact, I, I, have, I have seen the piece of, of art, and it's actually lovely, but that's all it is, is a bunch of pixels. It's, it is, it's a guy called Mike Winkleman, who operates under the name of Beeple. And yeah, it's sort of, actually, we'll get to NFTs, right? right? And Ethereum, which is the crypto of choice for buying these NFTs. But let's actually talk about crypto, okay? And the idea is that crypto yep. are called cryptocurrencies. And the suggestion is that they're money. Yes. Because currencies are money. Yeah. Right? And let's discuss whether they are money. The reason I'm interested in this right now is that New Year 2022, the idea is what's going to be one of the big trends this year? Mm. What's going to be one of the big reveals this year? You know, And maybe one of the big reveals is that crypto is something 
but it's not a currency. And the reason is, look at, for example, Bitcoin. I can I can see Twitter going off the rails at this. <laughs> no, no, I'm saying crypto is something. There's yeah. no doubt of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not money. Mm. It's not money. Like, so, that's okay. so Bitcoin, when we spoke about it a little while ago, we interviewed a few Bitcoin aficionados. Bitcoin was at 60,000 euros per Bitcoin. Mm. It's now at 37,000 euros. Now that, if you actually just do the, the basic maths, right, that is a 23 euros fall. 23 huge, euros yeah. as a percentage of 60 is a fall of 38, nearly 39%. So the currency has fallen by 39. I mean, this is a Turkish lira style devaluation. Yeah. So the question is, what is crypto? Well, we've tried to answer this on, on a number of occasions, but but just on that 23 euro jump. Fall. Was, yeah, but it jumped from, oh, yeah. from October 2020 up to 60. Then back down. And then back down. So So it's that kind of 23 euro well, huge, Rise and well, fall. well, well, well let, let's put it in percentage. It's, we're talking about something that's jumping around up and down 40%. So yeah. the thing about money, right, is money has to be a store of value. If something's jumping up and down 40%, up and down, it's mm. not a store of value. Because if you bought it at 60 and you sold it at 38, it's a source of profound wealth destruction. Mm. If you bought it at 20 and you sold it at 60, it's a source of profound wealth creation. So what it is is a speculative asset. Like what money has to be is one, store of wealth. Mm -hmm. Two, it has to be universally accepted. It has to be called what they call in economics a medium of exchange. So you've yeah. got to go into a shop and be able to buy and sell, right? Crypto, you can't do that. And also what it has to have is some relation. If you think about money as a concept, it has to have some relation to the value of everything else in society, to wages, to labor, to interest rates, to the price of yeah. Milk, yeah. the price of petrol, blah, blah, blah. Again, and that, and that relationship should be stable. Crypto has none of these. So whatever crypto is, it patently at this stage is not money. It's something profoundly different. And one of the ways in which you should look at money, you know, the question is what is money, is regard it as a language. Money is only useful when everybody can speak it. So if That's you a nice regard, analogy, yeah, if you regard money as money be, is the universal language, so all cultures, all creeds, all geographies, all deep, deep distinctions between people can be expressed by history, language, la la la. Mm. But what unifies everybody is money. Money is a universal language, and what gives language its power is usability. Mm. So for example, if you had to choose one language to learn between, let's say, English or Basque, yeah. English is far more useful, not because the language is more elegant, but because you can speak to most people. Yeah. And the key to language is communication. And the key to money is trade. Because money in itself is an energy. Money releases an energy in people, but that energy comes from trade. So if you regard money as kind of like language, the more it is used, the more powerful it becomes. Mm. But that, also language evolves. It's constantly evolving. Exactly. And so money can evolve. Too. Money can evolve. Exactly. So this is the idea that maybe crypto is an evolution yeah, of money. Yeah. But it's not a replacement for money. And I think at the very fundamental core of misunderstanding of crypto, from an economic and monetary economic point of view, is that 
Money is a technology, not a commodity. And lots and lots of crypto people regard money as a commodity. So it's a bit like gold. It's a bit like silver. It's a bit like petrol, right? Now, what makes a commodity interesting is the more scarce a commodity is, the more valuable it is, right? Yes, yeah. But money's the opposite. The more scarce money is, the less valuable it is. So, for example, you could come up with a fantastic currency, but if you can't trade it, it's of no value. Yes, anybody, yeah, 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 it is yeah, therefore a commodity. Yeah. It's like a piece of art. Mm. And a piece of art is not money. A piece of art is an asset which will go up and down. So if we look at the idea of money being language, and think of it like language, then think of money as a technology. It's a technology that enables other things, right? Yeah. It enables innovation. It enables communication. It enables trade. It enables finance. it's useless in and of itself. Yeah, so if, yeah. exactly. So this is why, for example, you take any iteration of money needs to be universally accepted for it to be useful mm. and for it to constitute the moniker money. Otherwise, it's an asset. So if you think about money in terms of the most widely accepted currency in the world is the dollar. And what gives the dollar its strength and, for example, its reach is the fact that everybody knows what it is. And everybody's got a good example of what its value is. Mm. And I always think that, you know, before COVID, I used to travel a lot, mm. and particularly to remote parts of the world. And what I always was amazed by the power of the dollar is you'd get into a taxi in almost any, what we used to call third world country. Yeah. And every taxi driver could tell you the value of the local currency to the dollar, not only in that day, in that hour, if you were in Argentina, right? right? And that's real power. That's real reach. It's the idea that it's universally understood, universally used, and that's what gives the Americans the power of the dollar. So so could you say then that the, if, if you're using the analogy of language, that cryptocurrency is the Esperanto? Oh, I see what you did there. Of language. Really interesting analogy, right? So Esperanto is conceived in a city that used to be called Lemberg in German. It's Lvov in Polish. It's Lvov, apparently, in Ukrainian. Right. So it's a city just on the border of Poland. Ukraine was in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Mm. Now, extraordinarily, it was probably the most multi-ethnic city in the world at a certain stage. <laughs> you had Russians, Poles, Germans, Jews, all speaking different languages, yeah. right? And yeah, Lithuanians. Yeah. So the Russians speaking Russian, the Poles speaking Polish, the Jews speaking Yiddish, the Germans speaking German, right? And all these people mixed together all the time. And the guy who conceived Esperanto was somebody who sat there and said, you know, people probably speak six or seven languages. That was not unusual in the old Austrian-Hungarian Empire for people to speak five or six languages fluently yeah, from a yeah, very, yeah. very young age, and then maybe even learn English and maybe even learn French. So they were trading with each other. They were all mixing in these multi-ethnic cities, which were destroyed during the Second World War. Yeah. But they were a patchwork. And the reason they were a patchwork is they were cities that were in this empire once, and then they lost, and there was another empire, another empire. So every time these cities, when boundaries shifted in Eastern Europe, the language shifted. But what happened is the underlying language of the people stayed the same. Yeah. So they could learn five or six languages just to live Amazing. and trade. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Esperanto comes from a geezer who was living there who said, hold on a second. There must be one language you can learn that can unify us all. Yeah. And it was actually a really, really, it was, it was much more than a linguistic project. It was a political project to say, if we speak the same language, the nationalist and religious differences that come to the flare up every now and then 
might nest, might actually go away. So, so, so Esperanto was a language that this guy devised. This guy devised, but right? it wasn't based on on kind of Latin in the same way as it's, as a lot of no, European it's languages based, are. It's based more on Slavic language. Right. And Slavic language is grammatically based on Latin. So if you ever learn a okay, Slavic right. language, what I was amazed when I learned Russian was that it was exactly like doing Latin in school. Right. It was Jeez. based, yeah, it was based on Latin. Yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. really amazed that, I was thinking to myself, fuck, that Latin actually came in handy somewhere, right? <laughs> so it was based on Slavic language and German language. The two of them fused together. Yeah. That's the the ground basis of Esperanto. Yeah. But it was unbelievably elegant in terms of its grammar and it was very simple and it was very, very logical. So for example, if you learn a Slavic language, particularly if you learn Serbian or Croatian, they are completely phonetic languages. So right, they look okay. exactly and are spelt exactly as they sound. Right. Right. And the phonetic comes from the Phoenicians who came up with the first alphabet. Right. So the Phoenicians came up with the first alphabet because they wanted to create. I love it. It's great. Because the Phoenicians wanted to create an alphabet that looked as it sounded. So mm. the A, B, C, the alpha, beta, gamma idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And the alpha was, you know, a bull. That's where it actually comes from. Right, 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 okay, right. You know, right yeah. All really fascinating stuff. But so phonetic languages is the idea that the language looks like it is written and like it sounds, right? Mm. The Slavic languages look like that, particularly the Slavic languages with our script that we don't have to do Cyrillic for. Yeah. So that's Croatian, Polish, all those things. Right? But coming back to Esperanto, the idea was that it would be, it was like crypto. It was going to, yeah, yeah, as you yeah, said, it's going to, the old language was bad, new language is good, which yeah. goes against your idea of evolution. Yes. Because obviously languages evolve. They take bits from everywhere. But anyway, I think your analogy is right because what happened with Esperanto, it was more logical, more obvious, fantastically easy to learn. Mm. And therefore it became potentially the crypto of languages, but nobody took it up. In actual fact, a tiny little area between Belgium and Germany took it up before the First World War and was an Esperanto-speaking republic. But I'm talking a republic of about five square kilometers. <laughs> right. Yeah, really. But the idea was... These are the evangelicals. These are the evangelicals. Like, <laughs> They're the cults. It was like an Esperanto cult. But let's come back to cryptos, right? You're absolutely right that if a currency doesn't have broad acceptance and usability. It becomes like Esperanto. It's very elegant for academics. Yeah. It's very elegant for the cult. People really believe in it, but you have to, like all cults have to convert. That's what cults, that's how you go from a cult to a religion. You got to convert. Yeah. So in a way, you're absolutely right that Esperanto could well be the linguistic analogy for crypto. But this idea that universally accepted is, is the key, right? So if you think even, for example, think about the dollar, right? Mm. What is the most anti-American? So the dollar is the symbol of America. Yeah. The most anti-American movement in the world is, what would you say? China, uh, well, I ISIS. suppose ISIS. Yes. ISIS, yeah, yeah, yeah. they hate the Yankees. Yeah, yeah. What did they accept their ransoms in? Dollars. Dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, yeah. it yeah, supersedes yeah, yeah, yeah. culture, right? So just to get back to the idea that for, <laughs> for crypto to become the currency of the world, to overtake the dollar and the euro and the yen and whatever, what you need to do is you need it to become universally accepted. And it's very, very far away from that. So it's not money. It's not a store of value. It's not universally accepted. It's not a medium of ex exchange. So it is something, but it's not money. Now, the crypto 
people, and I'm listening to them because I, I take your point that money evolves and it could easily be part of something greater. Yes, yeah. They say, look, the problem with your money like dollars is that's public money. What we believe in is private money. What they say is your money is centralized. We believe in decentralized money. Your money is human-made. We believe in algorithms. So basically, we're for the robots, you're for the humans, yeah. right? And what they say is that their robotic money, their algorithmic money is purer and less, what would you say, kind of less contaminated by humans. So basically what they'll say is the state can't engineer what money, they can't print money, yeah. et cetera. And that is a fair point. So they were what are called in, in the history of money, they are hard money advocates, right? There's hard and soft money. Mm. Hard money is money you cannot change, you cannot print. There's only a set quantity of it. Mm. And it's generated by the private sector, yeah. by an algorithm or something else. And our money, public money, like the dollar and the euro, is actually federal. It comes from the government. It comes from this, the ECB. It comes from the central bank. We create it. Yeah. So therefore, it's, co it's, it's connected profoundly with politics, democracy, and everything that makes a society gel together. But yeah. they're saying, hold on a second, that makes us contaminated. John, mm. let's take a break now. Come back and talk about cryptos. But I think... A real takeaway is that money is a technology, not a commodity. And think about that all the time when you're thinking about money. We're going to be back and I'm going to talk to you about lots of things. Dixieland, Northern Ireland, why unionists use money that's actually printed by a Republic of Ireland state-owned bank and other mad stories from the nether regions of finance. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So when you say public money, that's kind of centralized and private yeah. money is decentralized. Yeah. yeah. Right. So explain that a little bit more to okay. me. Okay. Well, I'll tell you some really interesting example. The crypto people 
talk about decentralized money mm. as if it's something new and as if it's something linked to the last 10 years of technological innovation and the blockchain and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That's not the case. We have always mm. had private decentralized money. In fact, I'll give you an example. On this island of ours, right? On this island, yeah. we have private money circulating all the time. If you drive up to the north, right? If you go yeah. to the north, one of the, the many unusual things in Northern Ireland, okay, yeah. is you look at the banknotes in Northern Ireland. The banknotes in Northern Ireland are issued by private banks. So you've got, you've got allied Irish banks issues notes in the north. Northern Bank issues notes, the one the RAS robbed. Remember the RAS robbed all yeah. the things, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Danske Bank issue notes in Northern Ireland, a Danish bank. And they circulate all the time and they're used. And those notes, the currency of Northern Ireland, right, yeah. is actually and, not sterling. And this is the same this in really Scotland as well, isn't it? Exactly the same. That's, you know, that's really weird. I remember being in London years ago and you'd get change in a shop and it would be a Scottish £10 note or yeah. whatever. And you'd look at it and you go, grand. And then you go down to the next shop and you use that to buy your fags or whatever. And they go, no, mate, sorry. Won't accept it. Won't accept that. And you're going, hang on a second. I've just got this from blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so this is fascinating. So the Northern Irish money and the Scottish money is private money that circulates in tandem with public money. And it's not necessarily legal tender then. It's not legal tender at all in the UK. So nobody's obliged to take it. (laughs) So it's actually the private money that circulates in Northern Ireland circulates by virtue of the fact that people accept it. Okay. It, so you can't, so as you say, if you go into Liverpool with your, with your you know, Danske Bank, Northern Irish yeah. £10 note, they'll tell you where to go, right? Hang on. Where did this come so from? What called, was the idea it's of chartered this? money, right? And it's right. quite an old thing that happened in the UK, right? So the Bank of England is the state-backed bank of the United Kingdom. Yeah. The one that issues sterling, mm. right? Mm. It has mandated banks in Northern Ireland to issue their own currency. It undertakes to convert that currency at par. So if you go to the Bank of England, it will give you the money back. Right, okay. But nobody in the rest of the UK is obliged to take it. So it's an example, it's an interesting example of public money and private money circulating side by side. So to give the crypto guys their due, it can actually happen. Right. Right? Right. But typically, the history of private money, decentralized money, is a story that only makes sense if some centralized authority backs it. Now, the reason which the dollar yeah. and sterling have got credibility is they're actually the government's bank. The Fed is the government's bank. Yeah. And backing the government is the revenues of the government. Right? So the whole idea is okay. money as an asset has to be backed by something. And the revenues of the United States are the tax system of the United States. Mm. So what actually binds the dollar to the economic reality of the United States is actually the revenues of the United States, which implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly underpin the credibility of the Federal Reserve. Exactly the same with the Bank of England. Right. Like the Bank of England started as a private bank. Yeah. And it operated as a private bank from the late 1700s, right, yeah. to 1947, when it was nationalized by the Labour government. Yeah. So it has been a private bank. But the echo of that remains in Northern Ireland, this ancient thing. So, so that's, that's the history of centralized and decentralized money 
in this part of the world is really interesting and complex. Okay, so I'm still a little bit stuck on this because why bother? Why didn't the, the Bank of England just... Eradicate them. Eradicate them and print more money for Scotland and, and, Northern, and Northern Ireland. Ireland? It's a historical thing. Okay? And, and what does it say, by the way, about Northern Ireland and their attitudes towards Northern Ireland? Well, their attitudes towards Northern Ireland, it's, it's a separate place. That we don't it, we don't even bother printing the currency for that place. Yeah, well, I mean, they, you know, I, don't say I that never, to unionists, but that's actually. The but truth. I never thought about that before. But th- that's yeah, kind of what it says. Yeah, it's like we, we don't care about that place. They've got this Mickey Mouse currency. Yeah, we'll undertake to convert it at par. Mm. But actually, the interesting thing is, AIB is an Irish state-owned bank, and it actually issues the currency that the unionists are trading every day. <laughs> Which is kind it's of mad. Just really bizarre. Don't think about economics too much. It's too head wrecking. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we go back to the so go back to this idea of decentralized money, the history of America, the history of American finance is also a huge history of decentralized money. Mm. So what happened was remember we talked about Hamilton. Remember our yes. friend Hamilton, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Hamilton in 1792 introduces the silver dollar. Do you remember we talked about the Spanish dollar and the silver dollar? Yeah. And the silver dollar was the only currency the United States issued as a federal currency for a hundred years. They issued no paper currency after the Continentals. Remember the Continentals yep. collapsed? About, couldn't give a Continental. So, of course, that's all very well if you're not into but But America was expanding rapidly to the West, right? Absorbing huge amounts of immigrants. This is America from, let's say, 1820 to 1860. Sure. Huge amounts of immigrants. And they were always scarce of coin, right? The Americans yeah. never had enough coin. Right, because most coins were minted in Latin America, and the Spaniards had all the monopoly of this. Right, yeah. Okay, so the Americans had enough coins, so they had to come up with a way of financing this incredibly innovative economy. And what they came up with was called wildcat banks, right? And wildcat banks were kind of banks that were set up all over the west and the south of the states, and those banks issued their own currency. Right. right. Okay. Like yeah. in Northern Ireland. Yeah. yeah Except yeah, they yeah. weren't banked. They weren't backed by anything federal. They were backed by the credibility of the bank. So you'd set up a bank and I'd say, John, give us your deposits. And you'd say, oh, all right, Macker, I'll give you $1,000. I'd say, fine. And with your $1,000, I'd create $10,000 of currency. Right. Right. And the idea was you'd never come and get Ask. asked for all your money at the same time. Yeah. So I could actually play this game. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, yeah. what happens, all these, loads of these banks would bust. Right. But the idea was that the decentralized money that the crypto guys talk about has already been there in the Wild West in the 1840s, 1850s. Yeah. And one of the great stories of that is the origin of Dixieland. John. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the Dixie Chicks and down to Dixie and the Dixie Democrats, which we talked about the other day with Ed Luce. Yeah. Actually, there's a great line. You know, the night they drove old Dixie down by the band. I do know. It's a great line in that. Go for it. That says, I don't mind chopping wood. I don't mind if your money's no good. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was Dixie. And Dixie's money was no good. Excuse the tuning there. Well, John, I I think think it was a little sharp. We have a fine baritone, a fine tenor there. But (laughs) It's too early in the morning. (laughs) But that's exactly. So the idea was that Dixie was originally a currency. Mm. So the Bank of Louisiana was one of these wildcat banks set up, right? in New Orleans, as they'd say, and in New Orleans, and they created a $10 note. But because Louisiana was bilingual, all JM's mates, the Cajuns, yeah. who had come down with General Cadillac from Canada, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the Louisiana parcel, you know, the, that, that 
Talleyrand. We spoke about Talleyrand. Yes. And, and Hamilton. Napoleon sold half of America to the Americans yeah. for $15 million. Yeah, what a deal the of the tri- century, that. So isolated in Louisiana were Cajuns, were French-speaking people. So the French-speaking Bank of Louisiana issued currency in French. Mm. The language was French and English, French on one side, English on the other. But for some reason, the French terminology became dominant. And the $10 note was DIX, D-I-X, in French, written on the note, pronounced D-E-E-C-E in English, DIX, or in French. But of course, English speakers couldn't pronounce DIX, so they called it DIX. The $10 note was the DIX. And then this note became... That was the phonetic. That was the phonetic. Oh, look at you. Back to Phoenicians. Yeah, precisely. Back to what we were talking about. Exactly, right? So the English speakers looked at Dix and pronounced it phonetically as Dix, whereas the French pronounced it as Dix, right? Mm. Dixie became the place where that currency circulated. That currency, that wildcat bank, was bigger than the other wildcat banks, so people started to use it. Again, back to our idea, the more the currency was used, the more valuable it yeah, became. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole confederacy in the States became known as Dixie. It was the land where the Dixie currency, the Dix currency was used. And all the way up until the Civil War, Dixie was the currency used. And of course, when this, the Civil War it destroyed the, Dix, the Dixie. Mm. But if you think of it, that's where it all comes from. The nice so, drove old Dixie down. Exactly. So the whole idea is that money is part of culture. It's part of history. It's actually so much so that huge swathes of the United States are actually named after a defunct, decentralized currency. (laughs) To go back to our crypto friends, right? So the history of decentralized currencies that are not backed by a central bank, which is backed by the revenues, I come back to this, the revenues of the state, which are meaningful and material, the history is that these currencies implode. And my fear about crypto is that if you believe that it's just a currency and it's going to replace money, mm. then you're throwing all your eggs in one basket, right? That you say, it's going to replace the dollar. Yeah, time. Yeah. Whereas if you say, look, this is a weird speculative asset. It's emerging from technological change. It's emerging from the way in which younger generation think about money. So for example, I can understand why millennials and Gen Z are involved in crypto and Bitcoin. Because if you think about it, they're saving money, but they're priced out of the housing market. So when we were younger, we saved money for a deposit for a house. It was achievable. Yeah. Now you're thinking if house prices keep going through, like I'm 30 years old, I'm never going to afford a house. How am I actually going to get rich? How am I going to actually use my money for some good in the way our parents use their money to buy houses and that's Mm. how they created wealth? And we're thinking, okay, well, maybe I should jump on this Bitcoin train. Or this crypto train, I can I can really understand it. Yeah. Okay. But my feeling is Bitcoin is what they call a pump and dump idea. A pump and dump is when people who own the asset pump it up. Yeah. Hype it up. Talk yeah. about it's gonna change the world, la la la, and then dump it on the retail guy. Right. Because yeah. it's a retail story. Bitcoin is not a professional investor story, it's a retail story and it's a millennial and Gen Z story. But I'll just give you one statistic, which I think is opposite, and maybe a little bit chilling in terms of who owns Bitcoin, right? Right. The top players that represent 0.01%, so a hundredth of 1% 
of the investors in Bitcoin own 27% of all Bitcoin. So think about it. So there's a huge, huge concentration in a tiny, tiny amount of people, which is ideal for pump and dump. Yeah. So they're the evangelists who are pumping it up. And who bought it over the years. Crazy FOMO. Exactly. And then and then saying to the retail guys, listen, you gotta get a piece of this action. Mm. You know, it's it's and as you say, evangelists, these are these are kind of cultish beliefs. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And this is why the podcast will be rained on now. Because sometimes when you when you when you say, Well, maybe I don't believe the cult, those who are invested in the cult will naturally feel that you're actually having a pop of them, but we're not having a pop. We're just thinking, this is the way I'm thinking about it at the moment, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, for example, in the real world, not the crypto world. One percent of Americans control thirty percent of all American assets, right? Right. Yeah. So that's a disaster. But the Bitcoin inequality is one hundred times more than the real inequality. And if you're worried about inequality, right? Okay. But let's come back. Finally, we started with this idea of the NFTs Mm. and the art market. And the art market is fascinating. We'll do a podcast on the art market. But we're back to our friend Winkleman Beeple, who sold that pixelized painting for $70 million. But he didn't sell it for $70 million, right? Because the NFTs demand that you buy NFTs with a thing called Ethereum, right? Right. Which is another digital currency. Yeah. Okay, another cryptocurrency. Now, my understanding from a monetary economist perspective is that what has happened is they have created the currency without creating products to buy the currency with. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are created as currencies. But you can't go into a shop and say, can I have, you know, a packet of smokes with Ethereum, yeah. right? So they have had, therefore, to come up with a new asset, a new asset that you can buy stuff with Ethereum. So they've come up with NFT. So imagine that they've actually come up with a shop after they came up with money. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes no sense at all, right? Yeah, yeah. And therefore, <laughs> what's in that shop... Yeah, now the they have is, to stack the shelves. The price is going to go through the roof. <laughs> yeah. Because you can only buy the stuff in that shop with all the currency you have. So it's a bit like saying, you know, you have loads and loads of euros, but you can't spend them. But you can spend them in that shop there. Yeah. Everything in that shop is going to go through the roof, right? So the NFT value of the art, is it a reflection of the art or a reflection of people trying to get rid of Ethereum and convert them back into real dollars to use in the real world? So what we've got is... We have a sealed, an internally sealed system yeah. where Ethereum is necessary to buy NFTs. NFTs have been invented by the creators of Ethereum in order to monetize NFTs, to give them a value. And what's the value in? The value is in dollars. It's not in crypto. <laughs> so all crypto is related to dollars or euros or whatever. And we go back to our taxi driver. And the reason the dollar, the reason they want to sell the stuff for dollars and not Ethereum want to fucking spend the dollars. Right? Yeah, 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 of course. They want to go out and spend the dollars. So I fear, to conclude, I fear that when something is backed by nothing and it promises you the sun, moon, and stars, and the history of this sort of decentralized money is extremely, extremely dangerous. Yeah. It seems to me that this is not a great way to create wealth but is a very easy way and a fast way to destroy wealth. Just before you go, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much, genuinely, 
for your generosity in giving us a little bit of your time each week while we have a bit of crack and talk about all sorts of good stuff. And I especially want to thank all our Patreons who make all this possible. And if you want to join us on Patreon, there's loads of extras. Not only ad-free episodes, but Macker has also put together two economics courses complete with reading lists, notes, and all sorts of good stuff. So join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Thanks again. Chat to you soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.